Our New Testament reading today is in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. John, chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is, come, who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And our sermon text today is in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in the second part of verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 2. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ray. I doubt if you'll find any of the verses uh, that uh, Ray read today in, uh, on any plaques or uh, gifts, items at uh, Lifeway, uh, but uh, there it is in the Bible, and uh, we're going to strive to... Uh, to wrestle with it and to study it this morning. Thank you, Ty, for uh, not eliminating a song today. I think every song uh, touched a need in my heart. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm grateful for our music team. 
Uh, and again, thank you, Ray, for reading this month. G-Man, you ready for next month, I hope? You ready for, yes, ready to take it up and read? Take up and read, yes. Uh, and thank you for praying for our membership class, two weeks down, four or maybe five to go, and we kind of went long today on some other things, but it's a great group, and I appreciate the prayer support from our church family for that. Now, uh, Gail's a little rambunctious, so Karen, you may need to talk to her uh, at home, uh, give her some time out or something tonight, uh, whatever, but anyway, love those membership classes. Man, what a blessing, what a blessing. All righty, let's pray together. Dear God, I echo Jeremy's prayer for the Benton family. Uh, as their church family, in your sovereign wisdom, uh, you brought them to us, so now we're, we're, we're weeping with them right now. And uh, so pray that you would continue to pour out your grace on that family. And uh, thank you for heaven. Thank you for Jesus uh, preparing the way for us when we leave this earth. Uh, thank you for saving your people. And uh, we just continue to lift them up, Father. Now we do uh, echo Jeremy's prayers for the country of Ukraine. Uh, we pray especially uh, for the brothers and sisters that live there. And uh, thank you for that their assurance is not in uh, nationalities or, or world politics or armies, but in your son Jesus. And pray that uh, they will remember that and know that and be strengthened by that. And we do pray for an end to this, this meaningless, seemingly meaningless conflict. Uh, but we know you rule and reign over all leaders, even when we don't understand completely. Uh, so God, we trust that. And we rest in that. And we refocus our eyes on you. And we press on. For your glory. Help us be the church in these days. Protect us from the people that Peter's talking about in, these, in this text. In this chapter, these false teachers. Protect us, God. Give uh, myself, my fellow elders, uh, courage to protect the flock. To guard the flock. To put the proper fencing of theology around this precious body. And we ask you to help us to keep out the wolves, Father. Those that uh, Peter calls irrational animals born to be caught and destroyed. So help us, Father. Speak to us now from your precious word. Give us ears to hear hearts to embrace with joy and thanksgiving what you want to say to us today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All righty. Well, let's dive in. A quick review just a little bit. For the last two weeks, uh, we have pondered together uh, Peter's lengthy uh, if then statement in verses 4 to 10a. Uh, and in those uh, seven plus verses, seven and a half verses, the point that Peter is making is basically this 
God judges righteously and saves mercifully. That's the primary takeaway from that text we've been looking at the last two weeks. He compassionately rescues all believers. His righteous judgment will result in the punishment of all unbelievers. As Peter related to us and reminded us, in his perfect righteousness, God judged fallen angels. He judged the entire evil world in the flood, uh, saving Noah and his family. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will ultimately judge all the false teachers. In other words, God judges and will judge unrepentant sinners. But hallelujah, he also mercifully saves those who are his. He preserved Noah and his family in the ark. A beautiful foreshadowing and type of Jesus. Jesus is our ark today. The New Testament speaks of salvation as being in Christ. We are safely in him. Just like Noah and seven others were safely in the ark. We are protected from the wrath to come on the last day, just like Noah and his family were protected from the righteous wrath of the floodwaters. Peter then reminds us that he rescued righteous Lot and his two daughters, showing us very clearly that salvation, while it's a protection, as we saw in the case of Noah and the flood, it is also a dramatic rescue the greatest rescue ever. It's why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus came to save. What did the angel say to Joseph when Joseph was pondering very seriously divorcing Mary because of his perceived unfaithfulness in her? The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, for he shall save i.e. rescue his people from their sins. Beloved, we have been rescued from the deserved wrath of God in hell forever. And we are safe and we are secure in Jesus. We are divinely protected from the judgment that is coming when Jesus returns. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may we all in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Hallelujah. What a Savior, as we've just sung, is Jesus our Lord. Then last week, we sort of plucked out from the text the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, put it under the microscope, and pondered the sin of homosexuality. And we brought in to help us Paul's inspired teaching from Romans chapter 1 and saw that homosexuality was a result of God giving unrighteous and unsaved people over to their own depravity and to dishonorable passions. In other words, the sin was the in this life now the judgment. The sin was the judgment and is the judgment even before 
the last judgment. And of even greater importance, we reminded ourselves that at the root of all sin is the sin of not honoring God as God. And we said last week these words, we must be more appalled at the dishonoring of God by professing Christians than we are at the homosexual behavior of unbelievers who are receiving God's judgment. Let's be appalled at the right thing, at the primary thing, the dishonoring of God by creatures, including us, who were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to honor Him forever, to honor Him in all things, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all, all, all for the glory of God. So, verses 4 to 10a were kind of a parenthetical text reminding us of the basic truth of God as a righteous judge and a mighty Savior. In our text today, beginning in the second part of verse 10, Peter returns, he comes back to calling out the false teachers by revealing their depraved character. And he pulls no punches. (laughs) He holds nothing back in telling us how wicked they are. And that's what we want to look at today. So, let's remind ourselves of like two or three weeks ago, Peter has already warned us in verses 1 to 3 about the false teachers. And he's told us that, number one, they are dwellers among us. The enemy has infiltrated the ranks of true believers with these false teachers. It's like the wheat and the tares. They're there. They're there. And we must be protective of our flock and our children. Secondly, they are distorters of biblical teachings. They bring in destructive heresies. We must contend for the faith that's been delivered to us. Thirdly, they are deceivers of God's people. We must guard our minds. We must know what the Bible teaches. Because when you don't know what the Bible teaches, you are are easy prey for deception. You 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 are on the chopping block, so to speak. You are prime for deception if you don't know the basics, at least the basics of the Bible. Number four, we, Peter told us they are, the false teachers are defamers of the overall Christian witness. And beloved, let's just sit, receive this because this will be the case until Jesus returns. So we must be steadfast in living for the glory of God no matter what. We must be immovable in raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord no matter what. We must press on in spite of the naysayers who will lump us in with the kooks because they claim to be Christians too. So don't be discouraged. Know that that's the way it is. As our Lord tells us, take heart. Take heart. He has overcome the world and he has overcome and will overcome these false teachers. Finally, we've seen Peter told us that the false teachers are deniers They are deniers of the lordship of Christ. By their actions and by their false teaching, they deny our master who bought his church with his blood, who redeemed his church at the cross, the church of which they are not a part and never were a part, as evidenced by their actions in peddling 
false doctrine and leading others astray. They may, they may have at one time looked like they were a part of us, but they never really were, as John tells us in his first little letter. Now, those five statements about false teachers would be enough to give us ample reason to avoid them and to guard against them and to be on the alert for them. But Peter isn't finished. He's not finished. And as we read this, as we look at this again, note how Peter doesn't hold back. He is inspired by God to let these false teachers have it right between the eyes with God's revelation about them. I love what Charles Swindle wrote about these verses. He said, I love the fact that God doesn't fake, feign, or flatter. He is not a politically correct being. When his spirit moved various prophets and apostles to take up their pens and write the words we would one day read as inspired scripture, God never once said, now go easy, don't offend anybody, keep it mild. God never said that. And you know, I had kind of a, a little bit of a laughing time this week as I pondered this during the past week. I, I had to kind of chuckle as I thought about a possible future scenario uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Because in the past, I've at times, not very often, but at some times have been confronted and, and, and mildly reprimanded for, for saying things about certain teachers uh, that come nowhere near what Peter's saying here. Nowhere near the words of Peter. So I'm wondering, I got to wonder this week, are those folks going to confront Peter in heaven? You know, I can't wait to get to Peter in heaven and, 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 and call him out on what he said about those people uh, concerning the language that he used here. Inspired language, by the way. Probably won't happen, uh, but kind of funny to think about. So anyway, you can, you can flush that. Okay, anyway, let's press on. Uh, by first, I just want to simply reread these verses and ask the Lord to let them sink into our hearts a little, a little deeper. I know Ray's already read them and did a much better job than I'm about to do, but I just want us to hear them again, okay? 10b, bold and willful. He's speaking about false teachers. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay, right away, we've got, a, we've got a sticky one right here. Who are the glorious ones? We'll come back to that. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be, look at this phrase, don't you love this phrase? Destroyed in their destruction. They will be destroyed in their destruction. What is Peter saying there? That's just another way of talking about what the Bible talks about, um, I think in Revelation and maybe in a couple other places, about eternal destruction. In other words, in hell, 
You are not an unbeliever, a Christ rejecter, a God dishonorer uh, who dies in that state is not annihilated. So if you're here today or listening today out there in cyberland or whatever, and you're saying, you know, I love my life here too much, and uh, I'll just, you know, I'll just take my chances on number one, there being a hell, and if there is, I'll just get burned up and it'll be done with. No, it won't. No, no, it won't get done with. Eternal destruction. As Peter says, destroyed in their destruction. In other words, that destruction that somehow, some way, beyond our human capabilities to understand in this life, goes on forever. Eternal destruction, a destruction that never ultimately destroys you. Hell is just as eternal as heaven. So please know that. Know what you're going into if you continue to refuse to repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Oh, it's sending somebody to hell, hell wrong? Oh, another sticky verse. We got some challenges here. You can't leave me today. And I know you never have, okay? But today especially, you cannot leave me, okay? They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. See, that's why we've got to be established in the faith. Established, steady in the faith, steadfast immovable. We cannot be un, unsteady in our, in our theology, in our knowledge of the Bible. We cannot. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, who, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So once again, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter pulls out an Old Testament illustration. If you're not familiar with that, we're going to do like we did last time. We're not going to deal with Balaam too much today. We're going to pull that out. Go back to Numbers 22 and 24, the next time we're together in our next session of this study, uh, and, and look at that. What is the way of Balaam? What is Peter talking about? We're not just going to gloss over it, okay? We're going to pull it out and, and study it. Okay, so we've read the verse again, the text again. There, there's some challenging stuff there with some interpretation interpretive difficulties, okay, uh, even for people much, much smarter and better trained than me in the original languages and hermeneutics and stuff. Uh, but even with that, even with the difficulties, you know, who are the glorious ones? Why does Peter use the word wrong when talking about judgment of the false teachers? What's the way of Balaam? Okay, even with these difficulties, 
Uh, I think the overall drift is fairly simple to get. And I hope you get it. And it's this. False teachers are pretty low on God's rankings of humanity. If there is such a thing. I think it's why in the book of Galatians we read, uh, it's Paul's only letter where he doesn't start off with some kind of uh, encouragement or positive wording or commendation of the Galatian church. Why? We studied Galatians several years ago, and and I hope you remember, it was because the false teachers were messing with the gospel. The church was not protecting the gospel. And so Paul dives right in to his rebuke. If anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, of which there's not really another gospel, let him be, remember the word, anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him go straight to hell. So the Bible writers, they don't mess around with false teachers. And may we as a church, with grace and and speaking the truth in love, not mess around either. That's the message. That's the bottom line message. That's the big message. Uh, We don't want to get caught up in the weeds about the way of Balaam and who are the glorious ones. We'll address them. And we may have some disagreements on them. But that's not the main message. The main message is... Guard against false teachers. These are wicked people. These are evil people. So protect your church. Protect your brothers and sisters. Protect your family. Protect your children from them. So, and when we read these characteristics, something may begin to dawn on us. And this is another main uh, takeaway for me. When I read this and these descriptions of false teachers, it tells me this. It may not tell you this, but it tells me this. And it's this we don't need to be too hasty in labeling someone a false teacher. Because true False teachers, according to Scripture, are abundantly, horrifically, deeply wicked people. False teacher is a label that must be used with great care and great caution. It can't just be tossed around flippantly. And that may be the, one of the primary things, if not the primary thing, I've received so far from this text. Now, that doesn't mean to say, okay, if, if somebody goes directly for the juggler and says Jesus is a God, yeah, false teacher. False teacher. I don't care how sweet or nice they may look. False teacher. If they're denying the deity of Christ, false teacher. If they're denying the inspiration and infallibility of the Word of God, false teacher. I don't care how uh, personable they are. False teacher. Like with Galatians, if somebody is 
messing with the gospel and distorting the gospel, false teacher. I don't need to wait and see what kind of personality they got. Okay? So I guess what I'm trying to say is let's be gracious, let's be balanced, let's don't be quick to go to the label false teacher unless it's obvious. Unless it's obvious. Because this, this connects to the question I asked you when we began this section of Scripture. Where do you cross the line? Where does someone cross the line from being a mistaken teacher, a teacher who's misunderstood the Bible, uh, to a false teacher? That's a big jump. That's a big jump, okay? So let's uh, pray for each other in this, and uh, may God be honored. May God be honored as we defend the faith, as we contend for the faith, as we protect our church family and our physical families, and as we press on. Now, when, again, when we read this, man, these seven verses, they just ooze with what? Depravity. Depravity. But as Reformed believers, depravity doesn't surprise us, right? That's one of the basics. It's the T in the acrostic, right? The tulip acrostic. For those of you very new to Reformed faith, you might not know what I'm talking about there. But the, the, the tulip acrostic, T, total depravity. Man is totally depraved. That's why we've got to be rescued. No, no one is good. We can't make a good decision about Christ. We can't make the right decision about Christ unless God rescues us and gives us a new heart. So that's the T. You, unconditional election. God has chosen from the foundation of the world those would be, that would be his without any condition. He didn't look down the hall and say, oh, that butch, is go- he's going to be a good guy. I'll put him on the team. No, it's totally unconditional. There are no conditions to, God election, to God's election. He's sovereign over it. L, limited atonement. We like definite atonement better because the word limited, we don't really like putting the word limited with God or with Jesus. But, so we like definite, but then you got tulip and it doesn't mean anything. So we stick with L, okay, limited atonement. In other words, Jesus didn't die for everybody in the whole world. Sorry to tell you that, although I've told you that many times, uh, and we've talked about it many times. But definite atonement, Jesus definitely paid for the sins of those God had unconditionally chosen. Because if Jesus died for everybody, as we've said many, many times, hell would be empty. Everybody's going to heaven, and then we become universalists, which the Bible doesn't teach. That is heresy. That is false teaching. Okay? Uh, then you got the I, irresistible grace. Once God sets His grace on you, you cannot resist it. You're coming. You're coming to Him. But not kicking and screaming, screaming, right? You're coming joyful and thankful and happy and glad. Okay? And then P, perseverance of the saints. All that God says will make it to the end. God will preserve them to the end. Okay, that was quick, but we know the Bible teaches it. That's the basics of Reformed theology. That's why we, as, we've, as we're looking at, at once again in our membership class, that's why we're Reformed Baptist. Reformed Baptist. We believe these doctrines of grace. So depravity, this text of depravity doesn't surprise us. We know the heart, man, the heart of man is desperately sick, Jeremiah 17. Who can understand it? Okay. 
We see it throughout the Bible ever since the fall, not only in humanity in general, but also in the patriarchs and the kings and the apostles and in ourselves. We know that in ourselves, no one is righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's why we needed Jesus so desperately. But for the grace of God, there I go in verses 10b to 16. There I am. And this passage, Peter gives us vivid details as to just how low the depraved heart can go. Swindle puts it like this, whereas the Bible's biographies present snapshots of human sin, like Abraham lying about his wife, David, adulterer, murderer, Peter denying the Lord, etc., 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 all through the Bible. One of the proofs of the divine inspiration of the Bible, it doesn't hide the sins of man, doesn't hide man's depravity. So snapshots of human sin. And Paul's words of paint depravity with the, with the broad brush strokes. There's none righteous, no, not one. The apostle Peter here projects a detailed and dramatic picture of human corruption. The scene is neither pleasant nor encouraging. As I said, you won't find it in Lifeway on a plaque. Rather, it's dark. And foreboding, Swindle says. The tone feels more like a walk through the sleazy back alleys of a foul-smelling ghetto where shameless gutter conditions accost our moral senses like putrid waste in a gutter. Pretty good description of this passage. And remember He's talking, let's, let's get the, what we might call the, the pinpoint picture, but then the broad picture. Pinpoint, and he's talking about false teachers specifically. But the broad picture is, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's, I was born with a heart capable of these things and so are you that's why you need jesus so desperately even after you get saved you still need him so let's look at peter's characterization of these false teachers this, we're going to get just a rapid fire list i won't i won't um, elaborate on on too many of them maybe one or two but um here we go okay first he says they in 10 b 11 he says they are boldly arrogant Bold and willful. Both those Greek words imply an arrogance, a human arrogance. They are boldly arrogant. Um, and as I said earlier, these are difficult verses because who are the glorious ones? They are bold and willful. They do not tremble uh, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I believe this is saying that they, they do not hesitate to slander angels. Now, why do I say that? Well, the, this is where we've got to bring in other scriptures. The key text to interpreting this difficult text 
is in Jude. Remember we said Jude and 2 Peter. Man, there's a lot of similarities in those two letters. Okay? Who read which one first? Who knows? We get to heaven, we ask them. But Jude, a lot of, and here we go. Here's the, here's the related passage in Jude, verses 8 through 10. Jude says this, Yet in like manner, these people, and he's, also, he's talking about false teachers. These people are false teachers. These people also relying on their dreams. Oh, that's interesting. How many times have you seen a modern day uh, false teacher talk about their dreams and what God told them in their dreams? You know, I was, I was at a conference earlier this fall that I'll, I'll give you more detail later, but one just pops into my head right now where this one false teacher guy had a dream that, uh, that, that God had come to him. God had come to him. God had come to him and asked his opinion on something. Asked him, what should I do? This is God asking the guy, God asking the man, what should I do? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Or, or God, another one, a God coming to the, uh, 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 a human being, a, 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 a professed prophet, modern-day prophet, coming to them, and God, or Jesus, maybe it was Jesus, either one, Jesus is God, so it doesn't really matter for the point of the illustration, but uh, God or Jesus came to this person and asked this person to forgive him, to forgive God, because another preacher claiming to be a Christian had criticized the false teacher. Thought that might have been me. <laughs> that might have been me. He was talking about. But anyway, okay. No, I mean, that might have been the one that he was, God was asking forgiveness for because I had called out somebody. Okay, so anyway, get it? Get, I mean, this is modern day stuff, okay? Modern day stuff. Back to the Jew text. Uh, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, And here's the same phrase, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Same phrase. Then we keep reading, and we see that the context of that phrase is connected to a discussion. Well, let's just read it. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, so it's in the context of an angel having some sort of type of contention, with another angel, the devil, okay? So it's in the context of angels. Archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Okay, what was they disputing about? I have no earthly idea, and nobody else does, so don't worry about it, okay? All right, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. In other words, Michael did not issue a condemning judgment against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael didn't take it upon himself to rebuke Satan. He rightly acknowledged that's the Lord's job. Okay? And then Jude goes on, but these people blaspheme, same word, all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, we understand, we know, I mean, we, we, we 
acknowledge. There's a lot of mystery in these verses, and we don't want to get hung up here, okay? What was the dispute over the body of Moses? We don't know. But what we do know is this. Michael the archangel leaves the matter of judging the devil, another angel, to the Lord. He doesn't presume to do that himself. Now, have you noticed how false teachers today love to bind Satan? I mean, if, if you've seen any of their stuff or read it, that's a common thing. Does the Bible ever teach us to do that? I've never read it. Okay. But it's this bold and willful, it's this arrogant type thinking. You know, I can, I can push Satan around. I can bind him myself. Okay. Now, let's not forget the, Bible te- the biblical teaching. You know, all authority has been given to Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our king. And when he sent the disciples out, as we read about in the Gospels, he gave them authority over demons. Yes, 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 yes. We're not questioning that at all. Okay? But there's a difference between living and acting underneath the umbrella of the authority of Jesus and, and brazenly and arrogantly and pridefully flaunting it. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to wrestle with here? Okay? Simon Kistemacher said this. These people are bold and arrogant. They are unafraid to slander celestial beings. They blaspheme even the devils and in their arrogance transgress the limits God has set. Writes Peter H. Davids, quote, The devil himself is not to be the object of insult. The New Testament looks on such mockery as gross presumption, a pride based on a false claim to knowledge and power. And John MacArthur comments, it should be recognized that many modern false prophets in the extreme sectors of the charismatic movement make their fortunes supposedly binding and flippantly damning demons as if they had real power over them. They are actually false exorcists like the sons of one Sceva mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and perfectly fit Peter's description. Okay, so let's try to... Let's try to glean something useful from this mysterious passage, this text, this verse. Let's, let's understand, as believers in Jesus, we do not handle Satan and his minions alone. We seek and we rest in God's crushing power over demons. The serpent's head has been crushed, and his demons have already been defeated by Jesus. And his victory is our victory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. By contrast, false teachers like to boast about their binding, so-called binding of Satan. They revel in their self-confidence and directly revile fallen angelic beings as if they had direct authority over them without any recognition that the authority is ultimately Jesus' authority. Again, I repeat, nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to bind Satan or demons. 
In fact, in these verses, we are discouraged from doing that. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to speak to Satan in prayer. How often have you watched, been flipping the channels and you're watching TV and you, you, back, you pick up one of these dudes and they're, they're praying and they're t- half their prayer is to Satan. They're talking to Satan. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to do that. I don't care how much of a tough guy you want to appear to be in talking to Satan. Nowhere are we, are we instructed to pray like that. How are we instructed to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be there. Our prayers are to God, not to Satan. Prayer is our conversation with our Father in heaven, not to our defeated foe, Satan. And we need to learn from Michael, the archangel, who did not revile against Satan, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So that's my take on that verse. Uh, it's one of those tough ones. You study, you read. I'd love to, you got another take? I'd, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to talk about it. But it, it seems to be a display of arrogance when human beings think they have direct authority over fallen celestial beings. This is the arrogant attitude of the false teachers. And this seems to be the thrust of the verse. Okay, we won't spend as much time on the rest of them, I don't think. Uh, number two, Peter tells us they're wildly irrational. They are wildly irrational. They're like animals with no reasoning capacity. They operate totally from the flesh as a creature of base instinct. If you're familiar with the Psalms, you know that at one point, the, the psalm, one of the psalmists confesses this. Remember that great psalm, Psalm 73? He recognized his depraved animalistic nature when he said and confessed, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That's, our, that's the n- nature of, our, of the depraved heart we were born with. That's why we need a new heart so desperately. False teachers are like animals incapable of reasoning. Number three, they're destructively ignorant. Their ignorance leads to their ultimate destruction. This is where we got that, this challenging passage about uh, suffering wrong. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Okay, the immediate question of every believer, well, okay, well, how can God's judgment on them be wrong if God is a righteous judge? Now, suffering wrong is probably not the best translation Because we know, this is where we bring in other scripture, and we know that God's righteous judgment is never wrong. Abraham confessed that when he was pleading for Sodom. When he said, after his conversation, he finally said, I know that the God of all things will do what's right. But the Greek word here can also be translated hurt or harm. And so when you take that translation, yeah, hell's going to be a world of hurt. A world of hurt. But several commentators said this was a, a, uh, a play on words. In other words, the false teachers did wrong to many, causing pain and distress. And now in the end, that's going to be turned back on them. The wrong of the false teachers will come back on them in the form of eternal 
hurt, causing them everlasting pain and unending torment. So I think what we see here is the biblical principle of Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. In other words, the false teachers spent a lifetime in their false ministry hurting other people, wronging other people, harming those unsteady with unsteady souls, destroying the, the, the faith of, of many, leading others astray. And in the end, all that hurt is going to be turned back on them. Number four, Peter tells us they are openly overindulgent. He says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, let's be honest with each other. You don't have to respond out loud. Just respond in your head. When we sin, when we deliberately sin, okay, don't look at me spiritual. We all do. Okay, when we sin, most people, we want it to go unnoticed, right? We do it in the dark. We do it when we're alone. But not these guys. <laughs> not these guys. They flaunt it. They flaunt it. How, how often have you heard some of these TV preachers boast about their fancy cars and their private planes and their luxurious mansions, claiming that's a sign of God's blessing? They will tell us. That's what they'll tell us, right? Nope, just a sign of their greed. Just a sign of their greed. And their open indulgence. Not ashamed of it. it in the daytime. Number five, they're a deceptive hypocrites. Deceptive hypocrites. Verse 13b, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These dudes were taking the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper right in the midst of their sinful deceit. A prime example of taking the supper unworthily. Number six, they're insatiable adulterers. Peter tells they have eyes full of adultery, both the physical kind, the sexual kind, and the spiritual kind. Ultimately, they were adulterers against God, right? God was always calling Israel when, they, when, when God's people wandered. He was always calling them adulterers, spiritual adulterers. And they're insatiable, Peter tells us. In other words, they're never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They're never content. They always want more fame and fortune. Number seven, finally, they're greedy enticers. They are greedy enticers. They entice or lure unsteady and immature souls to their false ways. They look for believers who have not put on the armor of God and who are not firmly established in the truth and who are not willing to contend for the faith. And way, 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 way too many immature believers are willing to follow them. So, let's wrap it up like this. In verse uh, <clears throat> 6 or 15, Peter gives us what I'm calling a concise summary statement. And this is the one we're going to pull out and put under the microscope in a couple of weeks. I'll be out of town next week. Brother Ryan, Pastor Ryan will be preaching two weeks when we come back to Second Peter. This is the one we want to pull out and unpack more. But let me just say a few things about it right here. Peter calls in verse 15, gives us what might be called a summary statement by saying that the false teachers have followed the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam. 
Now, what does that mean? And we find that the account that Peter is referring to is in Numbers 22 through 24. And we're not going to go there today, but the next two weeks you need to read that. You need to be reading that. Give you a little some introductory comments, then we'll pick up in two weeks. Balaam was a Moabite prophet, a non-Israelite, who lived when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. Balak, the king of Moab, by the way, Bible trivia, how did Moab get started? Mo, the nation of Moab was the result of Lot's incest with one of his daughters. Okay, there's the nation of Moab right there. Okay, Moab, the, the king of Moab, Balak, is worried because he's, he's heard about what Israel has done to some neighboring nations, and he's worried that Israel will conquer Moab. So he contacts the local prophet Balaam and offers him money to curse Israel. And he knows that Balaam is this kind of guy. He, he, he loves money. And so he's going to give him money to curse Israel. And Balaam is more than happy to receive the money. But as we'll see, and as you'll read, as you prepare for two weeks from today, God sovereignly intervenes, and he winds up blessing Israel instead. And the account of Balaam's donkey talking to him is interesting and humorous, as we will see. So it's one of those passages that the, uh, the people who want to discount the Word of God really put down. Talking donkey, come on. Floating axe head, come on. Okay, so it's a, it's, it's a great passage for us to look at. And since Peter's mentioned it, we will. All right? So read that over the next two weeks. And like we did with Peter's reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll go to the Old Testament text that Peter is referencing and unpack this more next time. For now, I want to sum it up like this taking Peter's inspired words at face value. What is the way of Balaam? Well, according to Peter, it involves forsaking the right way. It involves going astray. And it involves loving gain from wrongdoing. Okay. And we're making money off of sin. Interesting note that I will revisit in a couple of weeks. But remember how Peter, we talked we, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about Peter calling these false teachers irrational animals. Remember that in verse 12? I find it interesting that God used an animal, a donkey, to talk to Balaam. <laughs> a little connection there, okay? Okay, if you're going to be animalistic, I'm going to talk to you through an animal. It's like God is saying, you know, if you're, okay, if you're going to behave like an animal, I'm going to use an animal to call you out. I'm going to rebuke you with an animal. It's a great text. I can't wait to get to it with you next week. Swindle says that God himself miraculously rebuked Balaam through a donkey, a sign of the depths of the prophet's animalistic madness. So, more on this amazing event Next time, you know, if I had one of those changing word signs, I would put up there about, uh, I would put us up there about to get, to get everybody's attention about, come here about the talking donkey, you know, but uh, 
Other people might use the biblical word for that to really get people's attention, but anyway. But then they would think, they were th- we were talking about the preacher, right? Okay. <laughs> I got you. Okay. Report to the elder meeting next month. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's wrap it up with all my, one of my, the, the guy, probably the preacher who had most of, uh, impact on me in my early days of, of becoming re- reformed. And that was Dr. John MacArthur. And next month's book of the month is an oldie but a goodie written in 2007 when the emerging church movement came out. I don't know if you remember that. It's a relic now. It's one of those fads. It's come and gone, okay, like all the fads do. Uh, But he wrote a book in response to that called The Truth War, Fighting for Certainty in an Age of Deception. And here's an excerpt from the chapter entitled The Evil of False Teaching. He says this, Contending earnestly for the faith does not require us to become brawlers. Amen. That's kind of linked to what I said at the beginning of the message about let's not be real hasty about the label. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about. Let's don't go looking for the fight. But when the fight comes, we're going we're gonna to step up. We're not running. We're like the president of Ukraine. We're here. We are here. Our elders are here. So bring it on. We will defend the faith. We will contend for the faith. But we're not going to be brawlers. Okay? Let's acknowledge that as plainly as possible and never lose sight of it. But by far the greater danger facing the church today is utter apathy toward the truth and indifference about false teaching. Maybe some of you came in today and said, you don't even ever think about that. You're not worried about that. You're, you're good. You're going to heaven. I mean, so, yeah, you're good. You, you don't, you're not even thinking about it. We need to think about it. Not be dominated by it. Not be overwhelmed by it. We're the victors. We have the truth. But we need to think about it. We need to be alert. Okay? Back to, back to Dr. MacArthur. Frankly, we are not very good these days at guarding the truth. We tend not to see the truth the way Scripture presents it, as a sacred treasure committed to our trust. I think that is why evangelicals on the whole don't take seriously the duty to expose and refute false teachers. We just want to be nice guys. We, we would just want to be, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. And that's kind of what MacArthur says. Too many have decided it is easier and seems so much nicer to pretend that every doctrinal deviation is ultimately insignificant. I mean, think about it. How do you think same-sex marriage got into churches in our country? Because years ago, people thought minor deviations from Scripture were no big deal. And they got on the slippery slope. And now we're ordaining, not we, but churches are ordaining homosexuals and marrying men to men and women to women and on and on. It's because nobody put the fences up. 
There, were no, there was nobody standing guard. There was nobody at the gate. And MacArthur ends it by saying, that kind of thinking has given Christians a dangerous sense of false comfort and security. So, may we as God's people not be complacent. May we never let our guard down. May we be diligent to expose and refute false teaching when it comes knocking at our door. May we always be alert as we contend for the faith that God has graciously and lovingly and wonderfully given us. And may we fight the good fight of faith as we make disciples who live for the glory of God. And may we always guard the deposit of truth that has been entrusted to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for truth. Grow us, Father, in our, in our love for it. Strengthen us in our defense of it. And sanctify us by the preaching and teaching of it. And we'll give you all the thanks and glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And when you're looking at your watches, remember we sang one more song than normal.